A Theory on the Unnamed Hero of Castle Morn, written by Reddit user Xylotophone. It's weird that there's a sword monument at Castle Morn, isn't it? These monuments commemorate some of the most defining battles in the history of TLB, such as the Star Scourge conflict, the Battle of Aeonia, the war against the Giants, both the first and second defense of Lendell. A sword monument at Castle Morn feels almost out of place by comparison. It marks the site of what appears to be a small uprising that happened during Godfrey's tenure as Elden Lord. But when you start to look, you notice that the central figure in this event had a lot of effort dedicated to his story on FromSoft's part. For a character who's left conspicuously unnamed, he's certainly more fleshed out than even some named characters that do make an appearance. And it's not just text descriptions and items, but locations, dialogue, environmental storytelling. And I've come to suspect that this hero is far more important to the bigger picture than he seems. The sword monument of Castle Morn reads, The Siege of Castle Morn. A lone hero fights for his vengeance, only to fall at the hand of Lord Godfrey. The grafted blade greatsword reads, The storied sword of Castle Morn, a revenger's weapon, it is burdened with oceans of anger and regret. A lone surviving champion from a country now vanished was so determined to continue fighting that he claimed the swords of an entire clan of warriors. The default skill on the grafted blade, oath of vengeance, swear an oath upon the great sword to avenge the clan. The arsenal charm, modelled off the grafted blade greatsword. This talisman was derived from an unusual greatsword, once wielded by a hero hungry for vengeance. We can extrapolate that this hero was from a country whose lands were conquered and assimilated by the Golden Order. He sought vengeance for his fallen clan, forging the blades of his enemies together into one ridiculous Game of Thrones reference, and he sieged Castle Morn alone, and he was so successful that Godfrey had to step in and put him down. Who the hell is this guy? I have my theories. But it's really telling that Edgar's duty bestowed on him by Godfrey's direct descendant, Godric, is more tied to the sword than the castle itself. I'm in your debt for keeping the sword from those fallen creatures. I'm no longer bound by duty. Once I've rescued Irina, I will spend my remaining days with her. When we first find Irina, she says, I've escaped from Castle Morn to the south. The servants there have rebelled, filled with hatred for every one of us. They've since come for every one of the companions I escaped with. They haven't spared a soul. Sounds like history is repeating itself. Just like the hero, the misbegotten are so hungry for vengeance that they're hell-bent on making sure there's no survivors. Reading into the past from what we see in the present can also give context to why this hero started fighting in the first place, a rebellion against oppression and enslavement. There's one more item that ties this together, though. The brick hammer, weapon made from an ordinary stone brick, wielded by a laborer who led a rebellion and later become a champion himself. Even among other bludgeons of its size, this weapon is especially weighty. The strength of a giant is required to wield it. The reason I believe this hammer is connected to the unnamed hero is because fits with what we see at Castle Morn, as well as mirroring the oddly positive tone this hero is spoken about in, and this hammer is found at Stormvile. The hero was defeated by Godfrey, remember, and Godfrey claimed Stormvile after defeating the Storm King. So... The hero found himself and his clan forced into servitude. He took up a hammer and led a rebellion, but it wasn't enough to save the ones he was fighting for. In the end, he alone was left standing. 
being kin to the giants, forging was in his blood, and with hammer in hand he took the blades of his fallen foes and forged them into the grafted blade greatsword to continue fighting. And, despite being an enemy of Godfrey's, despite being nothing more than a lowly labourer who led a rebellion against Erdtree vassals, history remembers him as a hero. Why? When we go to fetch the sword, we find ourselves on an isle behind Castle Morn, confronting a misbegotten with flaming red hair, wielding the sword we're looking for. Behind him is a mound of graves. I believe that the presence of the hammer in Stormvile, combined with how he's referred to as a hero, tells us that his story didn't end when he was defeated by Godfrey. I think Godfrey spared him, and brought him into his service out of respect, akin to Godwin's actions with Fortisax. And I believe the Leonine Misbegotten was intentionally placed by the devs at Castle Morn to be an echo of someone we actually know quite well, a young Radagon at his most unrefined. I know, I know. This raises way more questions than it answers. For now, try to suspend disbelief, and let's take a look at some details that help round this theory out. Radagon seems to come right out of nowhere in the timeline. Chronologically, he's first mentioned by name during the First Leonian War, already called Hero and Champion. Sound familiar? Miriel tells us he was commanding the Golden Order's forces right from the start of the First War, meaning he was already decorated. Lord Radagon was a great champion, possessed of flowing red locks. He came to these lands at the head of a great golden host when he met Lady Renala in battle. He soon repented his territorial aggressions, though, and became husband to the Carrion Queen. However, when Godfrey, first Elden Lord, was hounded from the lands between, Radagon left Renala to return to the Erdtree capital, becoming Queen Marika's second husband and king consort. The timeline fits. Radagon didn't return to the capital until after Godfrey was ousted, meaning that the Lyonian Wars and Radagon's marriage to Renala all happened when Godfrey was still Elden Lord. Godfrey, Lord of the Battlefield, would have been Radagon's direct superior, and so Godfrey was probably the one who dispatched Radagon to lead forces into Leonia. The Brick Hammer says that the strength of a giant is required to wield it. And I bring your attention to the bane of everyone who's ever tried to understand anything at all about Radagon. The giant's red braid. Every giant is red of hair, and Radagon was said to have despised his own red locks. Perhaps that was a curse of their kind. There's nothing anywhere to suggest that Radagon had any part in the war against the Fire Giants. Maybe this will change with DLC, but for now, we have to assume that this connection is something more personal, and we do know that Radagon was once a labourer. We know from his gold needle and gold sewing tools that he was a royal seamster. Bok confirms this when we give him Radagon's needle, and this is a really glaring oddity in Radagon's history, even on its own. The Lands Between has a caste system that distributes most menial labour to those considered lesser than humans. So Radagon was once comparable in social standing to the likes of the demi-human Bok and the misbegotten Smithmaster Hugh. Him being a seamster is so important to his past that we actually see it reflected in his rune with that crosshatch pattern. And we see it on his statues and in the pattern of the vines blocking the Erd tree, honestly, the caste system in TLB and Radagon's past as a seamster could be a whole post on its own. But to keep this on topic, let's take a closer look at the grafted blade's design. It's crude and it's not obvious, but some of the blades have been intentionally welded together in that crosshatch pattern. If I had a dollar for every time I fought a red-haired misbegotten wielding a legendary greatsword that was sloppily reforged out of another sword, I'd have two dollars which isn't a lot, 
but it is weird that it happened twice, especially when the other great sword is the sword that Renela gave to Radagon when they were betrothed. Item. Description of the Golden Order, Great Sword, forged by King Consort Radagon to proudly symbolize the tenets of the Golden Order. Telltale signs betray that this was once the Great Sword bequeathed to him by his first wife, Renela. Look close and you'll notice that cross-hatch pattern of Radagon's Great Rune, just the same as his repairs to the Elden Ring look. So this work was done by Radagon's own hand. And we know of Radagon wielding exactly two weapons, a greatsword, and the hammer he wields when we confront Marika. This is ridiculous, you say. Why would they put a misbegotten in to symbolize Radagon if he's supposedly kin to giants? I don't know. But what if I told you the dev name for the misbegotten was Radagon Chimera, and what if I told you that the reference name in the game files for the Leonine Misbegotten's boss arena is called Radagon's Lion Summoning Area? And what if I told you that the reference name for the area where you find the Golden Order Greatsword is called Patrol Radagon's Children Cave? Now what the hell is the link between Radagon and the Misbegotten? I don't think we know enough to answer that question. We know very little about the Misbegotten period, but it does demonstrate FromSoft's intent with their environmental storytelling. They wouldn't bring up Radigan's red hair every other time they mentioned the guy unless it mattered. My theory is that both of the misbegotten boss fights are meant to symbolically, but not literally, echo a past version of Radigan, the same way the rebellion at Castle Morn today is echoing the rebellion that led to the siege. Perhaps legends of this battle inspired the modern-day misbegotten. Perhaps it speaks to the whole crucible conundrum, who knows? Even so, if Radigan was kin to giants like I'm suggesting, how can he also be Marika? On top of that, we see statues and paintings of him that depict him as a human. A far cry away from the fire giants and trolls we see. That is a discussion for another post, another day, but I do plan to touch on it. If you've read this to the end, thanks. Hopefully, I've given you something to chew on, if nothing else. This post is something of a follow-up to a previous post I made proposing my theory about Radigan's origins being that of the unnamed hero of Castle Morn. And while I'm aiming to let this post stand on its own merits as much as possible, since I am going to be building off my previous theories, I do highly recommend checking that post out first, since I am going to be referencing it. It will also help contextualize my overall interpretation of Radigan's character that I've been slowly building towards. Before we get too deep into Radagon, though, I actually want to kick this off with Melina. Melina's identity, past, and motivations are still pretty hotly debated, but I do think the community has achieved enough consensus around her heritage as a child of Marika to safely assume it's true, and I do believe there's evidence that she's specifically Radagon and Marika's daughter, rather than being a fragment of Marika, akin to Millicent being a fragment of Millennia. Why? Well, out of everyone you meet and everything you can do in the lands between, Melina remains mostly unopinionated. Even pursuing the Dung Eater's ending won't net a peep from her. The bulk of Melina's dialogue will be seen by all players independent of their choices, unless the player chooses not to speak to her, and she'll only deign to comment on a handful of things specific to an individual player's choices. The most obvious is her trying to steer you away from meeting the Three Fingers, but less obviously, she also has a rebuttal to Shabriri trying to use her to bait you into said meeting. The game is set up to trigger the following conversation with Melina at a sight of grace, if and only if you speak with Shabriri. There is something I'd like to say. My purpose was given to me by my mother, but now 
I act of my own volition. I have set my heart upon the world that I would have, regardless of my mother's designs. I won't allow anyone to speak ill of that, not even you. Even then, she says it so indirectly that it's easy to miss that this dialogue is actually a response, and not just Melina being her usual enigmatic self. There's one exception, though. Unless you count Marika herself, the only person you meet that Melina openly expresses her interest in is, of all people, Bok the Seamster. She has two pieces of dialogue about him. Your Seamster, Bok. He is always eager to see your return. Please, will you talk to him when you can? I'm sure he would be much contented. And, your seamster, Bok, I see him crying from time to time. I think he misses his mother. He wants someone to tell him he's beautiful. Does being born of a mother mean one behaves in such a manner? Notably, she expresses affection and concern for him that she offers for no other NPC in the game. She never speaks with him herself, though, and instead urges the player to care for him. But, why Bok? What is it about Bok that can evoke this in Melina? I would argue that the core of it is because Bok actually shares a considerable number of parallels with Radagon, and her affection for him is in part stemming from affection for her father. And I know that sounds like a pretty big leap in logic, so let's flesh this out some more. If you buy into the theory that Melina is the glow-eyed queen, which I personally do, let it not go unnoted that the godskins are very heavily associated with themes of tailoring. It's like kind of their whole thing, like father, like daughter, perhaps, but... This post isn't really about that theory, which is why I wanted to get that one out of the way early. Whether you think Melina is the GEQ or not, she is certainly implied to be a sibling to Melenia and Michaela. I don't necessarily think they're triplets, though I don't rule it out. Either way, I know I'm not the first to point out that Melina's name evokes the typical naming conventions of the demigods, or how her pink-hued hair could easily be a combination of Marika's blonde and Radigan's red, or the parallels between the various butterflies the nascent butterfly for Michaela, the Ionian butterfly for Melenia, and the smouldering butterfly for Melina. Also worth noting that, regardless of whether or not she's the GEQ, Melina would have been an Empyrean if she was born of Marika and Radagon. From the remembrance of the rot goddess, Michaela and Melenia are both the children of a single god. As such, they are both Empyreans, but suffered afflictions from birth. I'm not entirely sure affliction was mandatory for Melina the way being an Empyrean would have been, but Rani lost her Empyrean status when she shed her body, and Melenia and Michaela's afflictions are both rooted in their bodies. So Melina, being without a body, would have lost her Empyrean status when she lost her body, and if she did have an affliction, perhaps it would have been shed with her body too, moving on. When we first meet Rani, she gives us the spirit calling bell and a set of ashes on behalf of Torrent's former owner, who we know to be Melina. And those ashes are the lone wolf ashes, the ashes of three wolves. From the raging wolf armor set, armor worn by Vagram, the raging wolf, one of the first tarnished to visit the round table hold. According to the old legends, wolves are the shadows of the Empyrean. And this is what Vagram aspired to be. And we do know that there's good evidence to show that Radagon was family-oriented. Despite the divorce, he must have otherwise been a pretty damn good husband to Renala, Given that Renala chose to A. marry a political enemy who, at the time of her marriage to him, was not royalty, B. remained so deeply devoted to him after he left her. Radan also thinks well enough of his father to evoke his legacy, following in his footsteps by throwing his lot in with the Golden Order, helm of the Golden Lion with flowing red hair, worn by General Radan. 
Radan inherited the furious flaming red hair of his father Radagon and is fond of its heroic implications. I was born a champion's cub, now I am the lord of the battlefield's lion. Though Melenia's opinions about her father are never directly spoken to, both Melenia and Michaela incorporate elements of Radagon's crosshatch seal into their own crests. The Rings of Light incantations in particular point to a loving father-son relationship between Michaela and Radagon, so at an absolute minimum it can be said that the twins aren't inclined to distance themselves from his legacy, even going against the Erd Tree as they are. If you've bought into my Hero of Morn theory, we can see a couple of ways that theory gets bolstered by these observations too. It makes sense that Radagon would be so deeply invested in nurturing his relationships with his family if he suffered through the loss of his entire clan. Radan's fanboy admiration of Godfrey suddenly makes a hell of a lot more sense when we consider that Godfrey would have personally helped to kickstart Radagon's legacy by sparing him at Castle Morn. And, on the topic of Radan, Shaw would explain why the hell he's so damn big and why his great rune is literally on fire. If it turned out that he's got some latent fire giant blood running in his veins, the great rune burns to resist the encroachment of the scarlet rot. So is it that far of a stretch to say that Melina's affections for Bok stem from being reminded of a loving relationship she had with Dadagon? Personally, I don't think it is. And I do believe that the developers wrote Bok's questline to quietly provide hints about Radagon's origins through the same storytelling technique I discussed in my previous post, echoing the pass-through characters in the present. Melina taking a special interest in Bok is one of the first big hints we get about this connection. Now, don't get me wrong. Bok is his own character, and so naturally not everything is going to line up one-one. But it's difficult to ignore how strong some of these connections are, especially because Bok is primarily how we learn that Radagon was once a royal seamster. If there was any doubt that the gold sewing needle and golden tailoring kit we get from the Church of Vows were utilized by Radagon personally, and not simply objects in the possession of a servant in his entourage, the Mask of Confidence should put that to rest. Mask with the mouth sewn shut with gold thread. When Radagon married Renala, he ordered the carrion magic preceptors to don these masks, to make it clear that all of their matters were to be kept strictly private. Note Radagon's seal cross-hatched over the mouth of the Mask of Confidence. It's Radagon's golden needle that you give to Bok, and Bok makes it very clear that Radagon's needle is a tool that is owned specifically by those who are tailoring the clothing of the demigods. Master, my apologies. Your wardrobe includes the garb of old demigods, and I'm afraid I can't make adjustments to them. My mum told me once that a royal seamster would do them up in a jiffy. When you give him Radagon's gold needle, he says, Is that a gift for my undeserving self? Thank you kindly. But what on earth could it... Oh, amazing. I've never seen a golden needle, not in all my life, with a spectacular royal crest to boot. Are you certain that this is for me? Oh, I can hardly believe it. Have faith in me, master. I'll polish my craft enough that I deserve this golden gift. I'll be the golden seamster bock. Now I'll be able to sew anything, even the threads of the demigods. But the similarities don't end at a shared profession. Bok, like Radagon, is never satisfied with what he's achieved. Even earning the highest possible station he could hope to achieve in his profession isn't enough. He's constantly seeking to improve. Do you think that Mum would be pleased if she knew? That I'm as good as any royal seamster now? Oh, it's still not enough. I need to learn how to sew from scratch like her. Compare against the Radagon icon. 
as the husband of Renala of Korea, the red-haired Radigan studied sorcery, and as the husband of Queen Marika, he studied incantations. Thus did the hero aspire to be complete. We can keep going. Bok, like Radigan, is someone deeply unhappy with the inhuman aspects of his appearance. My lord, in all honesty, what do you think of me? Am I fit to serve a lord such as you, in all my ugliness? Compare against the giant's red braid, hefty whip woven from the flame-red hair of a fire giant. Every giant is red of hair, and Radigan was said to have despised his own red locks. Perhaps that was a curse of their kind. And Bok, like Radigan, is someone whose decisions are able to be swayed by his desire for approval, love, and affection. Bok's quest can end in one of two ways, depending on whether or not we give him a larval tear, or whether we use his mother's voice to tell him he's beautiful as he is. Consider Miriel's dialogue. Concerning the miracle of this Church of Vows, Radigan once cleansed himself with celestial dew, repented his territorial aggressions, and swore his love to Renala. The order of the Erdtree and the fate of the moon were conjoined, and all the wounds of war forgiven. This miracle blesses the Church to this day, and so you need only follow Radigan's example to restore any bond, however strained or severed, to its rightful state of harmony. I do think this is really good evidence that Radigan was, is genuinely in love with Renala. Historically, arranged marriages between royalty have been used to settle conflicts and form alliances. A simple political marriage, perhaps with some financial reparations, would have been plenty if all they wanted to do was end the war and secure Leonia as an ally of the Golden Order. And yet Radagon, ever the perfectionist, didn't simply apologize to Renala. Muriel's dialogue implies that war hero and poster boy for Golden Ord er fundamentalism Radagon went as far to bathe himself with an elixir that quite literally alters fate in a basin crowned by a statue of the heretical Knox, to undo all the damage he did during the Lyonian Wars. And notably, Renala did not join the ranks of Erdtree royalty through Radagon. Her children only became demigods after Radagon married Marika. Instead, Radagon married into the Carrions, so the question is, what was it that Renala offered him that became more important than any other commitment in his life? if not family, if not love. On that note, let's circle back to Melina for a moment. Melina, as she tends to do, casually drops one of the single most loaded sentences in the entire game when musing about Bok. And I think there's a lot of things this sentence hints at in terms of how reproduction gets, uh, to put it delicately, handled in TLB. But for now, let's think about Melina's dialogue about Bok in the context of Bok's many, many connections to Radagon. Your seamster, Bok, I see him crying from time to time. I think he misses his mother. He wants someone to tell him he's beautiful. Does being born of a mother mean one behaves in such a manner? Keep that in mind as I discuss how all this links back to my theory on Radagon being the hero of Castle Morn. The tarnished archaeologist makes a great case for the Erdtree supplanting not only the cycle of death, but also new births. Demi-humans like Bok are born to mothers, and Melina's question implies that being born of a mother isn't really how the job gets done anymore. And so may imply that Radagon is driven by certain passions that those born under the Erdtree aren't usually subjected to. And while it was changed to be less direct, it's worth noting an earlier iteration of the rather phallic turtleneck meat item description corroborates. Turtle meat is said to boost virility, but none in the lands between seem to have much appetite for it these days. In lands between, the urge to reproduce has waned long ago. However, Bok was indeed born to a mother, like the hero, Bok a non-human who lost his home, 
his place in the cave, the hero's assimilated homelands, and his family, Box Mother, the hero's clan. I believe the role that the player takes in their relationship with Bok parallels Godfrey, while Bok parallels the hero Radagon. Normally, demi-humans are our enemies, and yet we quickly recognize that Bok is cut from a different cloth. On our path to becoming Elden Lord, we encounter Bok, take him into our service, eventually uplift him to high status, and by doing so end up radically altering the course of his life, driving him towards one of two eventual fates. Ah yes, finally we're ready to wrangle the massive elephant in the room. You don't need to buy into my theory about Radigan being the hero of Morn to recognize that FromSoft has now drawn an entire web of connections between Radigan and the various non-human races, the giants through the giant's red braid, the misbegotten through the red-haired misbegotten variant holding the Golden Order greatsword, and now the demi-humans with Bok. So if it's true that Radagon didn't start life as a human, how did he come to take on human form? One of the endings to Bok's questline gives us that answer. My lord, have you ever wished you might be born again? Well, they say that Renala of Raya Lucaria has the power to help people be reborn. Oh, me? Reborn. Oh, look at me. When you're this ugly, well, being reborn, it would hardly make a difference, I'm afraid. And upon gifting him a larval tear, we seal Bok's fate. Bok does take human form, but just like the rest of Renala's children, the rebirth is imperfect, and he tragically dies shortly afterwards. And yet the PC can go through Renala's rebirth and come out of it just fine. And the difference is that the PC has the great rune of the unborn. Amber egg clutched by Renala, queen of the full moon, great rune of unborn demigods, perfects those who have been born anew. Children born anew by Renala are all frail and short-lived, imperfect beings, each and all, and we know exactly who was in the possession of this amber egg and the great rune within it prior to Renala, from Sir Gideon Ofnir. But Renala herself is no demigod. She is merely the recipient of an amber egg given to her by Radagon, her beloved Radagon, left her to become Queen Marika's second husband, taking the title of King Consort. The great rune dwells within the amber egg that was Radagon's gift to her. Radagon absolutely had the tools at his disposal to achieve a perfect rebirth. Now, I can't tell you whether he would have done this before, during or after his marriage to Renala. There's just not enough information to say, but it's clear this option was available to him, and unless he just really felt like using a great rune of the Elden Ring as a really, really expensive wedding band and Renala just figured all this shit out later on her own... He's probably the one who taught Renala how rebirth worked. And I do think Radagon would have been under a lot of pressure, both internally and externally, to take this option if it was available to him. Godfrey had to give up Moog and Morgoth, after all. And remember, Radagon and Renala's marriage is implied to have happened towards the later end of Godfrey's tenure. And while it was more tolerated during this time period as Godfrey's age came to a close, there was an increasing lack of acceptance for those who possessed inhuman traits. Maybe the reason Radigan hates his red hair so much is because it was the only association to his past self that he couldn't seem to shed. And yet, there's still one more question all this theorizing has yet to satisfy. How the hell can Radigan be all this, and also be Marika? And we're still getting more questions. If Radigan truly loved Renala, why did he leave her? Why would he leave, but then also leave an entire great rune with his ex-wife? Did Renala know her husband was actually Marika? And why would a fundamentalist, a consummate perfectionist, a man so dedicated to his family, sit idly by while his children murdered each other? 
Why seal off the Erd tree and prevent a real resolution while the entire world continues to suffer in such a clearly broken state? Is it madness? Is it arrogance? Is it even voluntary? I think I can provide satisfying answers to all of those questions that bring all these ideas home. But for now, this post is getting long enough as it is, so let's table that for another day. To wrap this up, there's one more connection I want to leave you with to chew over. And it's quite a minor one compared to everything we've touched on, but I do think it's going to lead quite nicely into what will be my third and, fingers crossed, final post, tackling my interpretation of the enigma that is Radigan. Because, of course, there's an alternative ending to Bok's questline. Melina even hints you towards it. It can be earned by using the You're Beautiful prattling pate near Bok to let him hear his mother's voice. Instead of subjecting himself to rebirth, Bok is finally able to find peace with himself just as he is, a peace that we know that Radagon unfortunately never achieved. The description for the You're Beautiful Prattling Pate reads as follows. Twisted clay, sculpt in the shape of a demi-human head, emits a voice that says, You're Beautiful, a wistful fetish that imparts voices and words on an eternal journey, unconditional love, unrestrained assurance. It must have been a mother speaking. There's several other prattling pates, but there's only one other that has a unique item description. My beloved, twisted clay sculpt in the shape of a human head, emits a voice that says, My beloved, a wistful fetish that imparts voices and words on an eternal journey. Expressions of love are among the most fickle. Assorted dialogue from Renala strongly implies that this item description is speaking directly to Radagon and Renala's relationship. Ah, my beloved, have no fear, I will hold thee. Patience. Ah, thou, is it thy wish to be born anew, to become a sweeting, reborn of my beloved egg? Ah, thou art now a sweeting, full, fine and fair, my thanks for being born of my beloved egg, time and time again and the word choice used in the pate, fickle, notably shows up in one other incredibly important item description, Goldmask's mending rune of perfect order, rune discovered by the noble Goldmask, used to restore the fractured Elden Ring when brandished by the Elden Lord, a rune of transcendental ideology which will attempt to perfect the Golden Order. The current imperfection of the Golden Order, or instability of ideology, can be blamed upon the fickleness of the gods, no better than men. That is the fly in the ointment. That's all for now, folks. Thank you for reading. If you feel so inclined, please let me know what you think.